So you've built up inventory, you overproduced on chicken. If it sat there too long, then you're probably creating defects because now you can't serve it because it's old. You've generated waste. You haven't met demand. And that kind of comes back to like, there's demand for the value you are creating. And the idea of lean that comes back to is just meet the demand. Meet the demand. Going above and beyond meeting the demand doesn't serve anyone. It costs you. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Well, we're jumping into the final part of a four-part series that's all centered around the topic of value and waste. And it's a conversation that I've had with our COO, Zach Estes. And so we're jumping in to the final five types of waste in this conversation today. But before we jump into those specific areas, I wanted to return to why this topic is so important for impact-driven leaders and their teams. Okay, let's first start again with the overarching why. Why is it so crucial for the impact-driven leader who owns or runs a business to understand the eight types of waste, Zach? Yeah, I think when you give something a name, and so this is what non-value is in your business, this is what the customer is not paying for. When you give those things a name, then you're able to categorize them, you're able to see them, you're able to get rid of them, and you're able to improve your process and your business as a whole. And something that you and I just uh, talked about this morning uh, that I think is absolutely applicable to this is just the principle that simplicity scales. Mm -hmm. And so if we can understand this acronym that you and I are walking through both on the last episode and on this episode, and then teach other people to understand this acronym, well, then you're going to create a culture or shared values and behaviors of a team where people are equipped and empowered to identify these sources of waste on their own. So what I'd love for you to do is walk through just the first three letters high level that we walked through on the previous episode of that acronym that is downtime. Just to kick us off as we think about a business holistically should be and and functionally provides value to the customer, right? That is what a business is doing. A customer is giving you money and the customer is receiving value from the business. Okay. The reason I bring that up is because the first letter in this acronym of downtime is D, defects. And a defect is just something that was supposed to be value that didn't come out to what the customer expected. So the business made a promise and for whatever reason, that product or that service did not meet spec that the customer expected and became a defect. So essentially we did all this work and it was incorrect. It was not what the customer's paying for. So first off, defect. Second, overproduction. This is actually the root cause of maybe all of the other or can be a root cause of all of the other wastes. Overproduction is just when you overproduce, there's not actually a demand for the the value that you're creating. And so when you're doing something and there's not demand for it, then you end up storing it up. You actually end up creating some of the other waste. Like we said, you store it up with inventory. Um, We'll talk about that here in a little bit. While you're creating inventory, you're transporting that stored up inventory. You're waiting to go and find the stored up inventory after overproducing it. You're 
wasting time producing it with no demand on the other end. So all of that to say overproduction is the second waste in this acronym. The third waste that we hit on already is waiting. And this is just simply that, like no customer is paying you, no customer is paying you for them to wait. And so every time internally you see waiting going on between your team members, your employees, your yourself with your own vendors even, there's costs associated with that. And uh, your customers are not paying for that, <laughs> believe it or not. Very good. So we've got defects, overproduction, waiting. That brings us to the in, which is non-utilized talent. Explain what this is as we jump into part two. Yeah, whenever we're thinking about like impact-driven leadership, and and this really kind of gets into the, um, it could be hard skills, but also soft skills, so to speak, that are usually referenced around communication. And, you know, it doesn't just have to be like scientific engineering skills, so to speak, but people's capacity. Like if someone's overly able to do something, then that probably means that they're able to do something even more valuable for your organization. Right. If you have a really productive, valuable team member who just has such like natural leadership ability and is oozing with influence, then you probably want to get them into a leadership position eventually. And not utilizing that talent would be a detriment to your business. It's having some sort of asset on your team, whether that's a person or a capability, really, and not utilizing it. Which I think connects to a Peter Drucker idea uh, that's presented in The Effective Executive. That's just a fundamental book. He had so much figured out 50 years ago where he just says, like, the most effective executives, what do they do? They make strength productive. And I, I just love those three words because it forces us to, number one, survey our team and say, what is the strength that is available to us? And then how do we position that strength properly to produce? And that's the aim. And, and what are we producing? Obviously, value. What does the opposite of that look like? Or how? what often plays out in organizations that you've observed, Zach, that can be really wasteful? Yeah, we've talked about this at some point, maybe in one of our first episodes we've recorded. And I think what most often happens here is that someone functionally operationalizes their role and reduces a significant amount of waste in the things and activities and responsibilities that they do on a daily basis. And they turn a 40-hour role into a 20-hour role. And typically what happens in organizations is we don't seek to improve. We just say, okay, well, that person's still working here. And so that person then ends up just spending the rest of their full-time employment coming up with ideas or just not really having any focus or specificity about what it is that they're responsible for because what they got hired for, they made into a part-time job just because of how talented they are. And so I think then you get into the risk of not utilizing that talent and giving it aim and focus and specificity and just letting it kind of waste away. And so depending on the person, I think, I think the, and depending on the environment of the culture, I think the individual could try and see, okay, how can I best contribute to this team? How can I best contribute to this mission? Or they might say, I keep trying to contribute to this mission and I'm not finding a place here. And they'll get tired of it eventually. People want to add value. People want to be valuable for the business. And so not utilizing your talent is a good way to lose great team members. 
Yeah, it was an idea that seemed to have its day in the sunshine for what appeared to be about 90 days, but that idea of quiet quitting. And yeah. and it kind of bugged me a little bit. The number of people that were spending outrageous amount of time creating content on quiet quitting, it's like, okay, but like, really? Like, you're this is how you're investing your time, though, is talking about what other people are doing. It's like, okay, this doesn't seem helpful. But let's look in the organizational mirror and say, how on earth have we created an organization in which people can quit and no one knows about it? Like basically check out, but still receive a paycheck. Like if my organization is so fatty and so messy that people are able to do that, why shouldn't they? And why wouldn't they, quite frankly, is one of the things that I've thought about. And I think that connects to non-utilized talent. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I think there are people in our spaces who like regularly reference, you know, speaking of quite quitting, there's all these debates online of like remote versus in-person work. And I think the cost associated with remote work is that if you don't have a good pulse on things, then yeah, people can figure out that, oh, I can, I just figured out how to do my 40 hour job in five hours. I just got a vacation every week is what, is what ends up happening. Or that's with a really inappropriate culture and a a culture that has no accountability or anything else. And on the other end of things, it's, okay, you go into an office and you've turned your 40-hour job into a five-hour job and you still have no opportunity to grow. And now you're just stuck. Now you're just stuck in an office and you can't quietly quit because people still expect you to show up on time, but you're not going to do anything more contributive because you can't not able to. They're not utilizing the talent that they've been given in you. That's right. There, There's another tension associated with this that I experience a lot that I'm really interested to hear your take on. And the most visceral way, I think, to depict this is through example. There's a restaurant that it's a chain restaurant now. They've grown very fast. I'm not going to name names because I'm not here to brand bash, but I think you personally might know who I'm talking about. They actually make great food. Their product is exceptional, and it's kind of like a Chipotle line style place, right? Where you go, you you order what you want, and then they walk you through this series of selections that you make so that it's kind of customized to what you want, and then you leave the other side. That system seems to be really, really good if your operations are dialed in like Chipotle. This Mm. restaurant is not. (laughs) Mm. And I've been to multiple locations around the country, and I have the same expectation every single time. The food's going to be great. The process of getting that food, it's going to be comical. Like, it's going to be so bad. And there was specifically one time where I kind of had that expectation. So now I've gone and got my radar on to just watch where are the eight types of waste playing out in this line. And I'm sitting there just thinking to myself, Zach would be rolling on the floor right now because I'm sitting in line and there's like a buildup in the line, right? Like there's, there's a buildup in the line. People have made their order. They've gone through the initial stages of, yeah, I want rice. I want lentils. I want greens. And and now they're sitting here. And the reason why everyone's starting to sit up here and like, there's starting to be a traffic jam in this line is because the chicken isn't cut yet. And Mm. probably three or four out of every five people want chicken versus the other options that they have, right? And the reason why they're saying, oh, I I can help you in just a second is because the chicken's not cut yet. Uh, Well, meanwhile, I'm literally looking at a pile of chicken (laughs) sitting behind them that is just sitting there. And yes, it needs to be cut, 
but there's a bunch of people just standing around like and I can see the knives I'm like the knives are right there and they're just like the chicken like cut yeah and and it's clearly someone's job to cut the chicken meanwhile you've got people like literally skipping five places ahead in line or yelling down the line because they wanted meatballs and they didn't want chicken right and it's just like what is happening <laughs> to the point where I'm like I'll go back there I'll cut the chicken like let, give me a knife let me cut the chicken for you right and and I just want to go back there and be like all we need is a manager. All we need is some leadership. Be like, you grab the chicken. You take care of these five people that are backed up. You be the meatball person and take care of that person. And, and it just needs some clear direction and system and process. Now, here, here's the tension. It's a little bit of a humorous story, but here's the tension. I think that you can start to solve for that problem and be like, okay, whenever there's chicken sitting, it's everyone's job to cut the chicken. Whereas the, the reason why Chipotle seems to run so sustainably well is it is someone's job to cut the chicken and they, they've created a system in which that is within that person's capacity and they dependably do their job well. So like, I guess, is there any more elaboration you have on how do you manage that tension of like, sometimes we just got to cut the chicken, but there's actually a structure that you want to create that will be built around what's sustainable for the future. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, and I think so many people can relate to that. A couple things come to mind. Like this is this is everything we teach about operationalization, right? The, having a standard, documenting it, evaluating the execution of the standard and improving. And whenever you're talking about the improvement of something, you're talking about sustainability. How can we sustain this? How can we do this at a more affordable rate? How can we do this uh, faster and still produce the same outcome? You're holding operationalization in one hand. On the other hand, you're also building a culture of solving for bottlenecks, problem solving, just simple, continuous improvement, problem solving. And part of problem solving starts with observation and just being able to like take a step back, detach as Jocko would say, and just observe what's, what's happening right here. So many people are ordering chicken. There's chicken, right? You as a customer are able to observe because there's not much happening with you right in that moment or you're waiting in line, i.e. waste. So you're able to sit there and observe like, what the heck is going on here? And you're like, there's a pile of chicken. No one's cutting the chicken. Everyone's ordering chicken, but chicken needs to be cut. <laughs> and so you're just able to see the bottleneck really, really easily, especially when you're a customer and you're feeling the waste. I think as employers, we tend to feel the waste faster than our employees, but getting your team to have that empathy for the customer and so that they feel the waste in their processes, I think is really, really important and key there. Yeah. And I think that hits on the interplay of culture and processes right. and that it's like a lot of times, man, your culture is revealed when things go off plan, mm -hmm. but your process is the plan. And it's like, this is how things should be executed. Final thing on this, uh, have you seen the movie The Founder? The McDonald's movie? Yeah, have you seen that? Yeah. I, I just, I get this image, uh, and this is in many ways kind of the role that you play for our organization that I want to give people a, a vision for is like, y'all should watch this movie. It's a brilliant movie, and it's just a, such a great entrepreneurial story and business story. But there's a point where they're trying to figure out the processes within a McDonald's restaurant, and they're trying to dial that in. And I think they literally draw chalk on a basketball court, and they like draw where the French fries will be and where the drive-through would be, and the, you just see like a time lapse of them running it over and over again. And I think in many ways, 
that's what I perceive you as the COO of our company doing a lot is like trying to get above the organization, look down on the flow of work and making sure that talent is being utilized or strength is being made productive. And I think that's one of the tactical ways that leaders help reduce this type of waste. Okay, let's keep going. Transportation is the next one. So explain what the, the type of waste that is transportation, what that actually means. Yeah, transportation is the physical movement of goods or products or inventory or something. And so I can also relate this to a digital world, but it's essentially the, the movement of things is kind of how we think about transportation. And so um, in, a, in the physical world, right, it's the person moving the cut chicken over to the next bar to disperse the chicken into the thing and then then the moving the basket that's empty back to the dishwasher, right? They're having to walk that basket of chicken and no chicken to various places. And meanwhile, they're they're wasting time walking that places. Just that simple transportation, right? Your customer is not paying you for that is the point, right? That's a That seems really simple and it'd be like, okay, well, how do I get the chicken over there? That's not the point. That's a, that's a great question to ask is how do I get the chicken on the sandwich, right? That's a great question. The point is they're not paying you to transport it from here to there. And so that's transportation. In the digital world, often what this looks like is the transportation of information. And I think you have you would have a lot of interesting things to say about this around like the communication responsibilities being on the communicator's end for ensuring that the message is received by the audience who's listening and that being their responsibility. But all that to say, the transportation of information in the digital realm could look like, you know, you get some sort of information by a customer, maybe via a form being submitted. Okay, when that happens, where does that information go? Does it go to one person's inbox and now they need to copy and paste the information into a CRM? Or does it get automatically inserted into the CRM's profile? Does it need to be distributed to more team members' information? Does it need to, like, where does that information need to go? And how is it going to get there? And so whenever we're thinking about things being transported, it could be, yes, physical goods, uh, physical items, but also things like information in the digital world. I love that you hit on the fact that transportation and specifically the waste associated with it applies to information. And I think it applies directly to one of the pieces of content that I'm actually preparing right now to do for a team training with a team of like 30 office staff that we're going to go into the team and we're going to develop them on the topic of healthy communication. And one of the things that we're going to start with in that team training on healthy communication is just a principle that we want everyone to reflect on is communication is a kingpin skill. Mm. Uh, because like if you can knock down this pin so many other pins will follow. Conversely, if you can't knock down this pin, it, it, good luck knocking down the other ones, right? And, and so then we go in the team training, we go from that to this graphic that really shows like, okay, what is communication? Well, I have a message I intend that's in my head and that hopefully transfers into the message that I speak 
but it doesn't necessarily always even make that jump. And then the message that I speak transfers to the message that they hear, and it may not even transfer there. And then from what they hear to what they actually internalize and receive, and then if they want to talk back, then they have a message they intend that they speak that then I hear. And it's like the first thing we should all realize is, oh my gosh, the fact that we communicate anything ever well (laughs) is a freaking miracle of God. And that is not an exaggeration. It's unreal, right? But all of that is transportation of information. And so therefore, if we can become more concise and more effective at sending the ideas that are in our head out of our mouth to other people, that's actually an exercise in reducing waste is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Let me play a a fun game, which is if I could just, by the snap of my fingers, transfer exactly what is in my head to what is in your head, there would be near zero transportation, right? Elon might be listening, man. (laughs) You better be careful. I think we're not that far. (laughs) Right. So, okay. So that, that's a good example of there being less transportation in that form of communication information transfer. Now, because of their, that not being possible right now, defects are created whenever we're transporting information. Defects happen in the same way that products happen. If I'm carrying something or imagine that I'm in a forklift and I'm carrying some products or something and I didn't do it correctly and I hit a bump in the forklift and everything falls off the pallet and dents happen, scratches happen on the product, right? All of a sudden transportation or poor transportation caused the defects, whereas if transportation didn't didn't happen to begin with, there would be no defects. So again, waste kind of begets waste and creates waste in itself. And so the whole purpose here is thinking like, okay, well, how can we reduce the waste so that there's less of it, period? Because if there's more opportunity for waste, it'll create more opportunity for waste in the same way that if I can't communicate something without defects, that's just going to create more waiting, confusion, non-utilized talent, uh, even more transportation of us trying to figure out what the other person's saying, <laughs> like all of that stuff. And meanwhile, we haven't even gotten to the thing of like solving for what problem we're trying to solve for. I think he's an incredible example of someone that practices this as it relates to communication really well is a guy that we've had on this podcast before, J.P. Kruger. Uh, mm-hmm. He owns Five Stone Tax in Austin. I'm so stoked because I know you haven't met him in person yet. He's coming to the Asheville experience and uh, he's just so passionate about the topic of lean and he's done as good of a job of integrating lean principles into that business in Austin as anyone I've ever seen. And his team has done a great job of adopting those principles, which is so cool. But whenever I first started engaging with JP, this was probably, golly, almost two years ago now. They do a lot of work in communication via email. And I communicate a lot with JP via text and email. And he would send these like less than one sentence emails that are just very like straight to the point, direct, like this is exactly what I want. This is exactly what I don't want. Like, why'd you say this? Right, just very direct. And (laughs) there was a few months, I've told him this before. I was like, there was a few months where I was like, I don't think this guy likes me very much. I can't (laughs) believe he's doing business with me because I don't think he likes me very much. But then in in getting to know him better, one of the things that I learned and one of the things that he made me aware of, and I saw that his team is very aware of it too, 
is it's like he perceives anything that is not the objective of the email as being a risk of getting us off track or slowing down transportation. So meanwhile, when I send emails where I'm like, oh, hey, how was your weekend? I hope that you're doing really, really excellent. And then I type out the topic of the email and then say, let me know if you need anything else from me. It's like that is all opportunity for us to get derailed by transportation, which is a type of waste. Meanwhile, I have zero questions about what JP is looking for and what the objective is. And especially if you can create a cordial environment where people have that understanding, it can really be an area where we can reduce waste. Wow. What a, yeah, great example. And yeah, I think, I think what you just hit on there is, is that that expectation is going to be set somewhere where in a relationship with someone, you understand this is the way in which we talk. This is the way in which we communicate. And this is why you're, you're teaching, you're leveling up other people as to the why behind that, because it's not for efficiency's sake, it's for effectiveness sake. And if we can do effective things more efficiently, then we're better off because of it. That's right. Yeah. So good. Let's jump to the next one now. It's the I in downtime stands for inventory. Explain this concept. Yeah. The reason inventory is one of the eight wastes is that it is built up value sitting there. And so it's either kind of raw material, so to speak, in a manufacturing setting, or it could also be number of emails in your inbox, right? It's something to work with. It's number of things to do. If you have a to-do list with a hundred things on it, you have a significant amount of inventory, right? And so the reason that it's a waste is kind of because it's sitting there right? Nothing's happening to it. It's just going to be sit there and it's waiting. It's kind of waiting for something to be done with it, to it, for it, either thrown away, essentially a decision to be made. What is this for? The other thing is that whenever we're talking about physical products, this actually takes up space. So inventory takes up um, cash. It costs money to have square footage. It costs money to essentially store something somewhere, right? We we are very familiar in uh, this Western society with self-storage units and being able to store things even above and beyond what's actually in our house. And all of that is waste, right? We pay extra for all of those things just to be sitting there waiting for something to be done with them. Similarly, in business, we pay to just stack things and that takes up time, energy, money. Um, in the digital world, like I mentioned about your email inbox, that takes up time, energy, money just to sit there and go through it and make decisions on whether or not something needs to be done with this. Oftentimes, it's just spam that nothing needs to be done with it. It could just be automatically filtered and deleted. I guess there's two areas of this that I would like to know if they apply. Whenever we think of inventory of specifically like to-do lists, one of the things that I think of is, yeah, it's not taking up physical space, but man, mental headspace. Yeah. Like it seems like there's waste associated with the fact that it's like you're now dedicating 5% of your time every single day to that unaccomplished action item and you're not actually doing anything about it. And we think like 5%, well, 5% every single day for the next year, it's like, holy cow. And 5% is a minimal, I would say. So would you say there is a parallel to like, man, the amount of headspace that sitting things take up? For sure. And that's that's the type of things that you can't measure, right? Like it's hard to measure energy, but you can feel it. You can for sure feel it. Uh, you can probably measure energy and things like that in other ways, like the repercussions of not having energy. 
whether that be your weight or the lack of sleep or relationship turmoil, like all of those things are just symptoms of other things, right? And so that's an example of, um, that's probably a pretty decent, maybe even normal, but probably extreme example of energy management and internally. And maybe how long we talk about those ideas and meanings too, without making a decision or acting like that feels like inventory as well, because it's information or knowledge or potential value that is just sitting there. And it's like, until we actually take an action and do something, all we've really got is theories that it may be really, really solid theories, but it can't become value until we, in, until we move it forward. Yeah, we talk about kind of this three-step model for decision-making inside of Path for Growth, and it starts with coulds, shoulds, and commitments. And I think this is why, this is one of the reasons it's so helpful to have this model for filtering decision-making and, and solving problems. The reason is because not everything is on the table. We can talk about things that we aren't committed to, and just talking about them isn't going to get us to commit to them. It's just being able to set them aside and say, okay, that's just a could and I can, if, it, if it's a could, I can literally forget about it right now and I'm not going to come back to it because I, I have not committed future energy, time or money to it. It's just a could. It's just an idea I had. I'd like to share that. Maybe that inspires something. Maybe not. Who cares? Just a could. Once we cross the line of, okay, we've committed to this, that garners attention, money, time, energy, right? And so, Going back to the principle of everything requires maintenance, you can't commit to everything all the time. You can only commit to a handful of things at any given time. And so maybe even one thing at any given time. And so it's worth just kind of building those guardrails for you to not have a built-up inventory of anything and everything. Well, and I think that also highlights the balance that it's at play between these types of waste because using the restaurant example that we used earlier of the, the cut chicken, it's like you could swing from that horrible experience and say, okay, we're going to cut as much chicken as we could possibly ever need at the beginning of the day just mm -hmm. so we've got it cut. And it's like, well, then you're sitting there at the end of that day with like, holy cow, we've got a bunch of chicken that's cut that we didn't serve to anyone. And so then you've over-processed chicken and then you also have excess inventory. Is that right? Yeah, you've totally. So there's so many things there, right? So you've built up inventory, you overproduced on chicken. If it sat there too long, then you're probably creating defects because now you can't serve it because it's old. And so like, there's so many things that's happened there that is all just because of, well, you've generated waste you haven't met demand and that kind of comes back to like there's demand for the value you are creating and the idea of lean that comes back to is just meet the demand meet the demand it going above and beyond meeting the demand doesn't serve anyone it costs you but meet the demand and this is, I mean, the great game of business is how we yeah. should look at this. It, it is not a tension to be solved for. It is a tension to be managed. I think one of the things that that example calls attention to, though, is like, man, if you're not careful, you can solve for one type of waste with another type of waste. That's right. And you want to make sure we're actually reducing. Okay, let's move to the M now, which is motion. Explain what motion is. And specifically, I'd love to know how does motion differ from transportation? Yeah, so transportation is the movement of things and information. Motion is the movement of people. 
And so uh, easily what this looks like is if you work in an in-person environment, then that's walking from meeting room to meeting room, walking to your desk, walking to lunch, walking. It's walking. It's all that wasted time just getting from place to place. Commuting, huge motion waste, right? Like that's literally just someone spending an hour, an hour and a half, two hours of their life every single day just to go somewhere so that they can do something. Motion in the digital world looks a whole lot like things not being where they need to be for you to efficiently get the job done. So as an example, you having to navigate and look for and find the file that's in a folder somewhere and you can't find where it is. So you're like looking, so to speak, you're digitally looking on your computer for that file. That's motion. Having to click seven times when it could have taken one time, that type of thing is is kind of what you would see in the digital world of motion. Additionally, if you think about this starts to get a little tricky and a little uh, a little funny if you if you play it out. But principally speaking, think about the way in which your customer engages with your website and how much motion are they having to go through as they navigate your website. And so, just thinking about like, are you able to solve those problems? Are you able to give them a clear next step rather than wasting their time, having them wait, having them confused, trying to figure out where do I go from here. The one other thing I would say here is uh, in a perfect world, what would happen is that Paul Akers actually has a a nice little kind of gimmicky uh, statement with this, which is wherever you have the question, there the answer is. Mm. And so a good vision for reducing motion is whether it's in person or digitally is being able to build systems around you so that wherever you have a question there, the answer is. And so if I'm executing a standard, let's say for our customers, what I would really like to be able to happen is there's some sort of program on my computer that understands what I'm doing and what type of software. And it knows what standards that that action applies to and it could just tell me like quickly, okay, what's my next step here? What, what's the objective for me to evaluate? Um, I think that would be really, really neat. In person, this looks like having to search for your tools. Let's say you're a maintenance guy at a manufacturing plant or to use the restaurant example, you know, if you have sauces, you're at a Chick-fil-A restaurant and you're needing to go and look for sauces because a customer asked for a sriracha sauce. And now you're walking around looking for the sauces because you don't know where they are. You don't know where they put them. No one's restocked them, all of those things. So that, that physical motion of the person is what motion is referencing. And it hits home why it's so valuable, especially in the early stages of the company to establish the standard. Everything has its place and everything goes in its place. And people may look at you like you have four eyes because you're so passionate about things. That's that when I was a kid, like my dad was so passionate about that, right? Like in the house, like there's certain drawers that things go in and those drawers (laughs) should always be closed. And I was like, why does he care about this so much? And for the longest time, I thought it was just like his little quirky thing, right? And now I realize it's like, oh no, he was, he was trained on Lean Six Sigma. He's an engineer for NASA, right? He was trained on Lean Six Sigma. And like, he's actually super passionate about reducing waste, right? Even for his six-year-old son, right? But it can be really helpful for us to know, like, man, there's lasting, long-term ramifications 
for there being a consistent way of having things go in a specific place and making sure that we adhere to that standard. That's, uh, yeah, that's such a cool example too. So, okay, the six-year-old Alex Judd, what the six-year-old Alex Judd does care about are probably his toys and like the things that he plays with. And when those things are missing, you bet for sure he's looking for them. And so like, if if you knew that those things were going to be in a toy bin or a toy basket or a toy drawer or something along those lines, you'd, you would know to where to be able to go find it and you wouldn't be frustrated. And so I think applying that type of empathy to your customers and what they're experiencing, what frustrations are they feeling? If you can't feel frustrated on behalf of what your customer does or doesn't experience, then you're not going to understand the wastes in your product and processes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the things, I think this took me a, a while to learn. I don't think I got it at six years old. And like in college, I would lose my keys like all the time. And keys were just one example. I would lose things all the time. And there was outrageous amounts of frustration with that because I would then be in a hurry and I'd be late to things and stuff like that. I would just lose things all the time. But what broke that, I think I'm actually much better at this now. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm better at it. What broke that for me, though, was not just focusing and dwelling on the frustration of I can't find stuff when I can't find it. I started to be really intentional about like, when you find things that are where they should be, like when I'm running out to a meeting and my keys are where they should be, <laughs> I like really try to take a moment to like say like, take five seconds and just have like such overwhelming gratitude of like, there's a place they should be and they were there. And it's like the combination of not experiencing the frustration associated with them not being where they should be, but also delighting in the value and power. And I think there's a leadership principle there. When things go as they should, call attention to that, right? And make sure people delight in that and tell them like, look how much time you just saved because before, maybe a year ago, maybe a day ago, maybe a month ago, when you created this file, you put it where it should be. That's so good. Looking at extreme examples is a good way to observe principles. And that's actually an engineering principle. Um, looking at Amazon, I think if you think about what Amazon has done for the economy, it's really, really interesting. They've reduced a ton of waste, a ton of waste. They've reduced me having to go to a store and actually buy something like the thing that I was going to buy, I now don't have to use motion. I don't have to spend my time moving from here to there to go to the store and doing that. If there are defects associated with it, that's not a problem because I can just return it for free. All of those things. Actually, Amazon has a significant amount of reducing the number, the, the amount of waste in the economy, which is why they've become so profitable. They have introduced a way to deliver the value that other people create, essentially a marketplace but just get it to people faster with less defects and at a competitive price. And that's just like, wow, we value that so much so that Amazon is one of the most valuable companies in the world. Man, yes. And what that highlights for me is customers, consumers hate waste. Yeah. Right, And Amazon is a great example of a company that said, what if we hated waste as much as our customer did? That's right. And, and like, what if we designed around eliminating that and reducing that? Very cool. Okay, let's jump to the E. Excess processing is the E. Explain this one. Yeah, so 
What's fun about uh, the acronym downtime is that it starts with defects and it ends with excess processing. And the interesting thing that I find about that is that it's all relative to the demand. And so a defect is a kind of a, it's something relative to spec, to the specification that the customer demands. And so a defect is a negative association of that spec and excess processing, some might say is a positive relation to that spec. It's actually not a positive. It's also just a negative. It's a purposeful defect in some, in some form or fashion. And so this is, this is like uh, doing something for your customer and charging them for it or packaging it into part of what they're already getting. And they don't actually care about it. They don't actually want it. They're not looking for that. An example of a physical product could be like painting the car or painting like a toy when the toy doesn't need to be painted or putting your brand on the backpack where really they just want the backpack. And so you're, you may do excess processing there. There's, there's so many different things where you're going above and beyond what's necessary and what the customer actually wants and needs. And you're spending money doing that. And that's costing the customer more money for that. So excess processing looks like attempting to add value to something that the customer doesn't actually value that part or aspect of the product. I think this topic right here might have been the foray to you teaching me about value and waste and the eight types of waste. And it was before Path for Growth ever existed. It was a previous job whenever we worked together. And I had no idea... I don't think I had any idea that you were teaching me at that time or what you were teaching me at that time necessarily. But just in a very nuanced way, it was actually in this medium. It was in podcasting. You opened my eyes to the fact that we were spending a lot of time and energy focusing on like micro edits, like removing breathing in or like breathing out or me saying um or the guests saying um. And like we were spending incredible amounts of time and therefore incredible amounts of money, like editing those things out. And you just kind of said to me, you're like, Alex, do you, how much do you think the customer actually really, really cares about those ums, those like all of that stuff being added or removed? Like if we got rid of that, would they even notice? And you started to move us in that direction and no one knew. It was like, even people on the team didn't know. And it was like, holy cow, like we're way overdoing something that the customer isn't even aware of and doesn't really care about. Things like that, I think, particularly when you aren't serving a direct customer, that's one worth standing out and just thinking about, okay, there may be an audience, but is someone paying me to do this? Is it a bet that you're making or is it something that you're actually creating and delivering value for? That's a whole fascinating another conversation. <laughs> um, but whenever you don't actually have that one-to-one conversation with a customer, it's a bet that you're making, right? And so at some point, if our audio quality is super distracting, then you want to probably do something that's going to fix that, right? We're not in the wind tunnel right now with birds chirping and trying to have a conversation. Uh, we have decently nice mics and recording something that takes the local recording of our audio and it uploads that. So like that's all nice and good and no one's asking us to do that. However, it doesn't like, make the experience a little bit better. But on the broader spectrum, what if we were having a conversation that no one cared about? 
Like <laughs> then we're just really wasting our time, right? Like this isn't helpful for anyone. We could be talking about cats and dogs and no one cares. And then, yeah, that's just the funny part of like putting your priorities first, right? Don't try to solve for the little itty bitty details if you don't have the macro, right? That's right. Okay. So the acronym is downtime. Let's run through all of them real quick and then we'll get one takeaway for the audience before we go. Defects, overproduction, waiting, non-utilized talent, transportation, inventory, motion, excess processing. If you were to leave the audience listening with one takeaway, what would you want them to leave with? And out of that, what would you want them to do? I really agree with Paul Akers and his assessment of kind of a root cause of all the other ways is overproduction. And I think one of the principles that we teach towards is just thinking about having a healthy number of commitments, whether that be in work or in life or when you're thinking about your marriage, when you're thinking about your kids, understand and specify the things, make them known to you and whoever else matters in the dynamic of those things. Make them known and consider what you're overproducing on. And so the reason I say that is because everything that you're overproducing doesn't matter. There's not a demand for it and you don't have to do it. For example, going above and beyond your responsibilities at work, above and beyond, there may be a place for that. There may actually be a demand for that. There may also not be a demand for that. And so just kind of guarding that, engaging that as an individual, as a leader, as the business owner of your organization, what is the demand for this? Are customers asking for it or am I committing to things that don't matter? And so take inventory (laughs) of the things that you're overproducing on and try to cut those things out. Work to improve eliminating those, getting rid of those eventually over time. You're never going to fully eliminate those, but you can work towards reducing those uh, in your life and in the lives around you. Man, killer conversation and killer series of conversations. This was a lot of fun, so we'll have to do more of this. Thanks, Zach. Thanks. Well, that's such powerful and also practical perspective from Zach that I hope you and your team will be taking action on. Hey, one more thing before we go. If you're one of those people that's been listening to this podcast for a while and you feel like you're part of the Path for Growth community peripherally and specifically if you own or run a business, we would absolutely love to have you check out what our executive membership is all about. And our team has actually made it possible for you to do that for free. You're going to get invited to the Path for Growth app. You're going to have access to all 12 of the fundamental lessons. And you're going to be invited to the weekly casual yet intentional office hours conversations that we host with impact-driven leaders every single week. And man, those are just like one of my favorite things we do. You'll also have access to all of our workshop recordings along with bonus content that we put out within the app every single week. We would love to have you come check this out for 14 days on us. Uh, If you have any questions about that or you want to sign up, just click the link that's in the show notes. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.